right. Well, good morning. How are you? Oh, I love having the response. Thank you guys for talking back to me. I need that. Being up here in front of everybody, it's good to have a little bit of dialogue and, and at least to know you're awake. Uh, so far, you may not be soon, but um, welcome to Restoration Church. My name is Pastor Kevin. If I have not had the chance to uh, greet you this morning, I hope I get the opportunity at uh, some point today. Um, thank you again for, for being here. It's, it's a joy and an honor to be able to worship uh, with you here at Restoration Church. Um, we've been in a sermon series for the past uh, month or so called The Art of Neighboring. And it's kind of this idea that Jesus, uh, one, of the, one of the religious folks in the, in the Bible comes up to Jesus and says, Hey, what's, what's the most important commandment? And many of you know the story Jesus responded and said, The most important thing is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And he said, but the second commandment is like the first. It's just as important. He said, it's to love your neighbor as yourself. So we've been, as a church, trying to wrestle with what does it look like for you and I to love our neighbor? And we've, we've gone through this series. We've learned a number of things about uh, loving our neighbor. We learned first who our neighbor is. Uh, we saw from uh, the story of the uh, Good Samaritan that our neighbor is anybody that God puts in our path that is in need. We don't get to define who our neighbor is. God defines who it is. And that's anyone that God puts in our path who's in need. We learned how God expects us to love our neighbor. He says, we, I expect you to love them with compassion, which means that when we see a need, we actually do something about it. We don't just feel sorry for a person, but we actually do something about that need. We saw uh, uh, two, three weeks ago, uh, what about the excuses? Because I know Many of you are going to be like me, or maybe I'm just like this myself, where I know what God's called me to do, but I have all these reasons why I don't have time, and I've got other things going on. And, and we saw um, how uh, Dan, Dan taught this message, Dan Brown, about when you are close to Jesus, when you are walking intimately with him, no longer are you driven by your own priorities. You allow God to dictate your priorities. And when God dictates your priorities, the things that are most important to him are the most important to you. And so when he says to love your neighbor as yourself, we understand that when we're walking close with God, that becomes a little bit easier because we're close to him. And the things that matter to him matter to us. Um, two weeks ago, uh, I missed this message. Jim Herring taught this message. But we dealt with a really practical way on how do we love our neighbor. We dealt with how do you actually share the gospel? Like, like, do we actually know how to communicate the gospel truth to our friends, to our neighbors, to the people around us? And Jim did a great job walking through this is how you share the gospel. And what a great resource it is for us to be able to, to, to talk about our faith with people around us. And last week, uh, last week we had a, another uh, great opportunity to, to deal with a how-to about our Christian faith, about uh, neighboring, about loving people. We, we dealt with how do you actually disciple somebody else? Because remember, Jesus didn't call us just to go and make converts to Christianity. He didn't call us just to go and get people to pray a prayer or to like Jesus on Facebook. He sent us to make disciples. And so we looked at how do we actually make disciples? We said there's three different types of discipleship. There's life-on-life discipleship. Where you invite someone into your life and you say, let me show you and help you process what it looks like to, to live for Jesus. We said there's life in community. That's the church coming together and a group of Christians saying, let's, let's learn together. Let's grow together. Uh, then life on mission. Where we link arms and say, hey, let's go and make a difference in our community. Let's go and make a difference in our world. 
And so today is the, the culmination of this series, The Art of Neighboring. And I was looking at what we should preach on today, and I thought, man, I want to be like really inspirational. You know, like we've, we've had this great series, The Art of Neighboring. Let's come together and let me, let me give something that will challenge us to go and change the world. Like, like let's, let's lit a fire under our tushies so we go and do something with this and begin to, to love our neighbors. And so I started thinking, man, what are some of the Bible stories we could teach from? Like, we could teach, like, 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 Peter at Pentecost, you know, where Peter is up there, he's loving the people around him, he's preaching the good news of the gospel, and 3,000 people get saved. Like, that's an exciting story. Like, that would inspire us to go and love our neighbors. I thought about, well, maybe we could just look at the Apostle Paul. Like, like the Apostle Paul, possibly the greatest church planner and missionary that ever lived, he, he planted no less than 14 churches in his lifetime. Like, that is inspirational. Like, that would get us excited to go and love our neighbors. I thought, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe we can look at maybe some of the old evangelists. Some of the guys that you and I might look up to, like a guy by the name of, of Billy Graham. Billy Graham, probably uh, the greatest uh, evangelist we've known in our time, who's probably preached the gospel uh, to, uh, is it up to up, upper, upwards of a, million, of a billion people now? I, I mean, he's preached the gospel to, to so many people. Like, that's encouraging and inspirational. D.L. Moody, John Edwards, uh, Charles Spurgeon, we can look at the stories of these guys who have gone before us that have had a tremendous impact in the world, and that would be challenging and encouraging and inspirational to us. I thought... Man, I could tell the story of maybe some modern uh, people that are making a difference in the kingdom of God. You know, like a, like a Matt Chandler, like, like, like a Beth Moore. Or maybe we could go really practical into one of our very own, Emily Roth, who is a young lady who is choosing to follow God into the mission field and going to Spain to, to be a missionary there. Like, like, like we could hear some of these stories and we could be inspired and challenged to go and, and, and make a difference and love the people around us. But I don't know about you, but sometimes when I hear these stories, when I hear about stories of folks like this, about Billy Graham and, and Matt Chandler and all these guys, sometimes I be, just begin to feel a little bit small. Like those guys are amazing. Those guys are great. But they're rare. And I'm not sure, like, 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 like I'm not sure, like, like, I can have that kind of impact. I'm not sure that I'm, I'm wired like they are to, to have that kind of huge impact on the world. And I, I, I'd actually say that most of us, like, like I'm not sure many of us could handle the, the, the pressures and, and the ministry that comes from having that kind of an impact, like a Billy Graham or a D.L. Moody or a, or a Matt Chandler. See, I would guess that most of us in here today, most of us, God has called us and placed us in our city. God has sent us into the city to seek the welfare of the city. God has sent us here to, to love our families, to, to go to work, to love our neighbors, and just to be good, Jesus-loving people right here in this context, in, in Yakima, uh, in the Yakima Valley. And to begin to think, man, like if this is where God's called me, like what impact can my, I make on the kingdom of God? Like Billy Graham and D.L. Moody, this guy seems so huge like like i'm not sure god could do that with me right here i'm just an everyday normal jesus loving person see what amazes me about all those great guys that we can look up to all those guys that have gone before us is every one of those people every one of those amazing leaders were impacted by normal 
everyday, Jesus-loving people like you and I. You can look at their stories and you can hear they were impacted by normal, everyday, Jesus-loving people like you and I. D.L. Moody. Anybody ever heard of D.L. Moody? Okay. Okay. Anybody ever heard of Mr. Kimball? Mr. Kimball was D.L. Moody's Sunday school teacher who one morning woke up and said, you know what? I think this young man needs to hear the gospel. And he gets up and he walks to D.L. Moody's workplace. And he's debating outside of the store. Do I go in and share the gospel and look like a fool in front of everybody else? Or do I not? And he just says, I'm going to go for it. He walks in and shares the gospel. And D.L. Moody gives his life to Christ that day. That was the beginning of his faith that led him to to reach thousands of people with the gospel. To to start Moody Bible. I mean, all these great things that D.L. Moody did started because Mr. Kimball decided, I'm going to take an interest in this young man. What about this? Anybody ever heard of uh, Mordecai Ham? Okay, Mordecai Ham, you may not know, but you probably know who Billy Graham is. The story goes, Billy Graham and his friends, they were teenagers, and they were doing what teenagers do, okay? So they grabbed some firecrackers and thought, hey, there's a big church meeting going on right here. There's a revival in town. We could take the firecrackers into the church and have a little bit of fun. Okay, don't get any ideas. I see those, uh, I see your eyes going, that could be fun at church. We're not talking about that, okay? That's my son, so I, I know what he's thinking. So, so, so Billy Graham and his friends, they go to the revival meeting, but instead of, instead of letting off the firecrackers, Mordecai Ham preached the gospel to them. And Billy Graham gave his life to Christ that night because of a guy by the name of Mordecai Ham that many of us have never even heard of. But the impact that Mordecai Ham, who was an everyday Jesus-loving person, had impacted gener- a, a generation. Thousands and thousands of people have come to Christ because of the preaching and because of the ministry of Billy Graham. So we come here today, and I don't want to speak about the grand scale of great things that we could do. I want to be very real and very practical. The realm of you and I as everyday Jesus-loving people, that God can use us to make a difference in the kingdom of God. And I want to deal with a story about how God can use people just like you and I to be uh, links in the great chain of God's work throughout history. That somehow, someway, God would use us in our context to make a difference in the kingdom of God. So the question I want you to think about today, the question I want you to ask yourself today, is today, as an everyday Jesus-loving person who, who loves his family, who goes to work, who loves his community, I want you to ask and say, God, what would you have me to do to impact your kingdom? God, today, here's my question before you. God, what would you have me to do? In my circle of influence, and in my context, what would you have me to do to impact your kingdom? Today, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. And looking at this idea about how Uh, The power of one, about how you and I, God could use us to make an impact in just one person. And how impacting just one person can have a huge impact into the kingdom of God. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. If you need a Bible, um, I think we have an usher in the back. If you just slip your hand up, we'll bring a Bible uh, to you. Acts chapter chapter 9. We're going to learn from a rather unknown Bible character. 
Someone that many of you probably say, I don't know who this person is. And how they were so important in the life of Paul. A guy by the name of Ananias. A guy who's an everyday, normal, Jesus-loving person who had a huge impact in the life and the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So Acts chapter 9, if you have been in church long, many of you know this chapter. Acts chapter 9, this is the, the dramatic conversion uh, of the Apostle Paul, who was originally called Saul. And you know the story. Saul was a persecutor of the faith. Saul was a guy who wanted to stop Christianity. He wanted to stop a dead in its tracks. And so Saul essentially was, he was a terrorist of the day. Okay? He was going to go and do everything he could to stop the kingdom of God, the Christianity, from exp- spreading across the world. We know that he was involved in the, the stoning, uh, the death of Stephen. And here in Acts chapter 9, in fact, uh, Paul is so against Christianity that he's gone to the authorities. And he's gotten permission from the authorities to go down to Damascus to arrest anybody who professed faith in Jesus. If you were a Christian... Paul was coming to arrest you so that it would stop the spread of Christianity. And we know the story. uh, Acts chapter 9, this is where Paul has his Damascus Road moment. Some of you have experienced moments like this. Where you are just living your life the way you want to do it. You're doing things your way, the way it seems best to you. Contrary to the way that God would call you to live. And God does something dramatic to get our attention. God does something to stop us in our tracks so that we would understand who he is and have that life change moment. The story goes, Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 3. It says, Now as Paul went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he answered and said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise and enter into the city, and you will be told what to do when you are there. And the men who were traveling with with Saul stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So Saul arose from the ground, and though his eyes were opened, he saw nothing, which is important. Remember the fact that that, that, that Saul, his eyes were opened, but he was still blind. It says, so they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. See, we love this story. We love this story of this dramatic life change where you've got this, this guy, Saul, who's a persecutor of the church, who's an enemy of the church, who's going to become possibly the greatest missionary who ever lived. And we see this guy who, who's going to become a church punter, who's going to write Bible, like, Like, this guy's going to write a third of the New Testament. This is a pretty cool story of a guy who's an enemy of Christ to becoming uh, a guy who's going to write Bible. Like, none of us have that on our our resume. Like, none of us can say, I wrote Bible. Paul did. Say, that's me. And this is his Damascus Road moment where he's busy living life the way he sees fit. Doing things the way that he feels is appropriate. Contrary to what God would call him to. And then God breaks in. And the world comes tumbling apart. There's nothing for him to do but to finally surrender to God and say, God, okay, I get it. I'm yours. I'm going to stop doing it my way. I'm going to do it your way. He meets Jesus. He loses his sight. And he's brought into Damascus. 
and he's so bothered because of what has happened. He's probably filled with remorse and regret and repentance that he can't eat and he can't drink. Now see, some of you have been in those shoes, haven't you? Some of you have had that Damascus Road moment in your life. Where you've been going down the wrong path, you've been doing your own thing, until finally Jesus breaks in. Everything falls apart and you finally realize, okay, that's who you are, Jesus. And finally you're ready to surrender. At that moment you're probably overcome with remorse and regret and repentance. You can picture Saul here. Jesus has broken in. And now he's filled with confusion and despair. Okay, God, now what? And he sits, Saul sits, and this is where we're going to be introduced to this character we're going to learn from today. A guy by the name of Ananias. This is a guy who is an important character uh, uh, in the life of Paul. The guy that we're going to learn from today. So before we are introduced to Ananias, I want you just to join me in a word of prayer. God, just thank you for who you are today. Thank you for this opportunity to be, to be gathered with your people. God, we know your people. We know the church is not just uh, a building. The church is your people. And so, God, we're thankful to be gathered with the church today. And God, I just pray as we have this opportunity to open up your word, that God, you'd speak clearly to us. That God, some of us have been on that path or we've been doing our own thing contrary to what you have for us. And God, it took a Damascus Road moment for us to turn. Maybe there's someone here today who are on that road and today is their Damascus Road moment. Where God, you're going to confront them with the truth. And God, I pray as we look at this life of Ananias that you help us to understand that God, you can use every one of us. That we don't have to be the greatest missionary that ever lived. But that God, you use every day Jesus-loving people just like every one of us in here today. God, that you would inspire us to make a difference in the life of one person around us. God, I pray that you help us just to lean in, to be present, to hear your word today, Jesus. We love you, and we praise you, and we ask this in your name. Amen. So here we are, verse 10, introduced to Ananias. And it says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. We want to make sure we're not confusing this Ananias with the high priest Ananias, or Ananias and Sapphira from uh, Acts chapter 5, who had lied to the Holy Spirit. But what we're going to do is as we look at the life of Ananias, as we look at the story of Ananias, we're going to understand, um, learn from Ananias how you and I can be used by God to make an impact into the kingdom. And the first thing we're going to learn from Ananias about how God can use us to make an impact is I want you to notice the title that Ananias has given. It says, it says there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. See, the first thing for us, if we're going to make an impact in the kingdom, we've got to be a disciple. You see, Ananias is probably not the most famous Bible character. In fact, the only two times that you'll see Ananias mentioned in the Bible is here in Acts chapter 9 and later in Acts chapter 22 where, where Paul references Ananias. This is a guy that, that, that we probably wouldn't even remember when we read through the Bible. We don't, we don't know who he is. We don't know his story. He's a guy that you read and you forget. And notice... He's not identified in the Bible. He's not identified here as being an apostle. He's not identified as being one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He's not identified as being a leader in the church. In fact, the only, the only role that he has given, the only title he has is a disciple. And think about this. We have this obscure dude 
This everyday average dude who doesn't even have a, of a role in the church. Without a special role. And this guy is God's chosen instrument for communicating the Holy Spirit to the Apostle Paul. At that time, he probably would have been one of the most important persons in, in, in religious history because of the impact he's going to have on the Apostle Paul. And we get no description for him other than he is a disciple, a follower of Jesus. Remember last week, we, we defined what a disciple was. We said if you are a disciple, you are somebody who is being conformed to the image of Christ in every, life, in every area of life. It means that you are, you are looking at your life and you're allowing God to change you to reflect him. And being a disciple does not mean we're perfect. We talked about this last week. A disciple does not mean that we are perfect, that we follow Jesus perfectly. But rather, when we are confronted with, with an area of our life that looks different than the way that Jesus would call us to live, that we're willing to surrender that to him and say, God, I want to do it your way. I want to be obedient to what it is you have in my life. A disciple is a learner. They're a, a follower. And see, here's, here's what I love about Ananias. Is he's described as a, as a disciple. He's not known as being a leader in the church. He's not giving a title. He's not given a role. He's just an everyday disciple. And we have to understand that God uses disciples to make disciples. And if you're in here today and you are a disciple of Jesus, listen, you are the means that God can use to make a difference in the kingdom around us. In fact, your strength, your strength for use, your strength for youthfulness, usefulness, not youthfulness, your strength for usefulness lies in the fact that you and I remain disciples. Because God uses disciples to make disciples. We can't make disciples of all nations unless we first become a disciples ourselves. Sometimes we have this idea that, that okay, well now I'm bec I've become a disciple. I've become a follower of Christ. Now I'm ready for the next level. Like, like, like let me take the next level of, of Christianity. And the example of Ananias is this is what it takes that we be a disciple and that God uses disciples to change the world. God doesn't just use pastors. He doesn't use elders. He doesn't just use Sunday school teachers. God uses disciples to make disciples. And this is encouraging me to us because not everybody's going to have a role in the church. Not everybody's going to have that position or that title or that authority. But God will still use every one of us to be used in the kingdom of God. So making a difference in the kingdom, first thing, you've got to be a believer. The second thing we're going to understand uh, from, the, from Ananias is Ananias was willing. He was willing to be used by God to make an impact on the kingdom. Here's, here's what it says. It says, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And check out his response. He says, here I am, Lord. Here I am, Lord. This is a phrase that you find uh, several times throughout the Bible. You think of the story of Abraham. Genesis chapter 22, when God's going to come to Abraham and, and want him to offer his son as a sacrifice. God calls out to Abraham, and remember Abraham says, Lord, here I am. The young, the young Samuel, as a child, remember Samuel is sleeping, and he hears a voice calling out to him. Samuel! Samuel! Remember Samuel's response? Lord, here I am. Thinking about, thinking about Isaiah where God gave him a vision of the throne room of God. And, and God's saying, 
Who can I send into the world? Who will go for us to be our mouthpiece, to, to speak the truth? Remember what the prophet Isaiah said? It says, here am I, Lord. Send me. Send me. So God still speaks today. God still calls us to be used by him. He may not, he, he may not be speaking audibly. You may not hear God specifically say out loud, hey, hey, Aaron, I've got something for you. Hey, Aaron, but God still speaks today. The question is, how many times do we answer, Lord, here I am? And how many times do we answer, oh, God, maybe not right now. Oh, God, you know, yes, I understand this and I know this is what you want. But God, that's for someone else. Yeah, that's for, that's for, you know, that's for the pastor. Like, I really don't have to go and do that. That's the pastor's job to go and make disciples, God. No, it's not for me. No, 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 God, God, God. Yeah, yeah, I heard you call my name, but, but can't we do that later? I've got some other things I've got to do. I've got a higher priority. I can't quite do that right now. I mean, let's just be honest. When God begins to speak to us and lead us and to guide us, how often do we respond with, okay, God, here I am. Go ahead and do what you want. I'll follow you. Maybe more than that, maybe instead of giving an excuse, how many times are we just not there at all? Like, sure, we're there physically, and we hear God speak, but we're just mentally, we're checked out. I mean, doesn't this happen? Like, we're here, but we're not really here. In fact, my wife and I, when we were on our trip here a couple weeks ago, we were out and when we were in Europe, here's what you do. You take the subway, you take the train system, you get to a place, and then you, 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 you go to the place, you take some pictures, and you get selfies in front of it, and you're kind of doing that. And then you go walk a long distance to find the next place to go look at. And you keep walking. I think when we were there for, for a week, I think we walked 75 miles, okay? So my feet were hurting at the end of the day, just the way it worked out. And there was one point, I think, I, I think there was a statue of Winston Churchill, and he's a guy that I've done some research on. I enjoy reading about Winston Churchill. Great guy. And so I think my wife was like, here, let me get a picture with you in front of Winston Churchill. And I'm like, that's awesome. So she takes a picture of me, and I'm on the phone, and I'm like, all right, I've got to figure out how to post this to Facebook. I've got to think of some clever thing to say. And so we're walking, and I'm on my phone, and my wife's talking to me, and I'm not really sure what she's saying. Because, you know, I'm there, but I'm not really there, right? You've been in that situation? And so I'll keep walking, and she's like, hey, there's a road, and I'm not hearing her. And, and I walk. And I walk into the road. Now, now I don't know if you've ever been uh, to Europe, but cars don't stop for pedestrians, right? Right? Cars do not stop for pedestrians. So I'm walking, and I'm not really paying attention. I'm there, but I'm not really there. And this car honks, and my wife grabs me by the arm. I was like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm trying to post something funny to Facebook. Well, of course that's what I'm doing, right? Like, how often, how often... Are we there, but we're not really there? How often times do we come before God in prayer? But it's just kind of going through the motions. How many times do you walk into church for worship, but we're not really worshiping. We're just going through the motions of, of church. How many times do we open up God's word? We hear the Bible being taught, but our mind is somewhere else. Our mind is watering, thinking about lunch thinking about all the things we have to do this week. See, this is a very powerful statement that Ananias made. Probably a dangerous statement as well. Here I am, God. I'll do what you want me to do. And maybe, maybe right now, maybe today, 
Maybe this is a statement you need to make for yourself. That you know God's been calling you. You know God's been speaking to you. And maybe today this needs to be your prayer. Here I am, God. God, you want to do something in my life. God, you want to do something in the people around me. God, here I am. God, I'm yours. God, I'll follow you. I'll I'll do what you want me to do. I'm listening, God. Every part of me, God, is yours. Maybe that needs to be our prayer today. And we'll say, God, I'm sorry I've been here, but not really here. But now, God, here I am. Go ahead and use me. See, this is where the scripture says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. There is work to be done all around us. There's work to be done in our church. There's work to be done in our city. There's work to be done in the lives of the people around you. And God is looking for men and women just like that, who would say, God, I'm willing. God, here I am. Take my life and use me, God, for your kingdom. Because listen, when we pray that prayer, when we open ourselves up to be used by God, we get the privilege of being a part of of amazing things that God's going to do right before our eyes. We get the chance to see God do tremendous work in the lives of people around us, lives that are changed just because we were willing to say, God, here I am. God, I'm willing. God, would you use me? I love this because here's Ananias saying, God, here I am. And you know what happens next? See, sometimes my fear is that when God says, hey, Kevin, Kevin, and I say, God, okay, here I am. Like, I don't know what to do next. Like, like, like I don't know what to do. Like, like, like sometimes I'm waiting. And I'm like, God, okay, God, I said, here I am. But what do I do now? Like, like what do I say? Where do I go? Uh, what am I supposed to do? But, but I love this because God gives very specific direction and detail. Look what it says next in verse 11. It says, that the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, the house of Judas, and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias to come in and lay his hands on him so he might regain his sight. See, here, Ananias said, God, I'm willing. And God is very clear. I'm going to tell you where to go. I'm going to tell you even the very street to go. I'm going to tell you the house of of, of Judas, this is where you're going to go. And you're going to look for a guy by the name of Saul. See, when we stand willing, God doesn't just say, okay, go and do it. God gives us direction. He leads us. He guides us. Now, I'll be honest. Sometimes I wish God would answer a little quicker. Like, have you been in that situation? Okay, God, this is what you're calling me to do, and I'm going. And I'm like, God, uh, come on. Like, like, like I'm, I'm following you. I'm a little nervous. Sometimes God's timing is not the same as our timing. But God does not leave us alone. God continually leads and guides at just the right time. In fact, God oftentimes gives us the exact words we need to speak. Just as God gave Ananias, very specific instructions. God does the same for us. When we're following him, he will lead us and he will guide us according to his time. Okay, looking at the life of Ananias. The third thing we see from the life of Ananias as to how to be used by God, how to make a difference in the kingdom, is he's going to show us we have to be perfect. 
Yes, he's going to say we have to be perfect. Because that's, I mean, that's in the Bible, right? Like if God's going to use us, we have to be perfect, right? Can I get anybody to say something here? I mean, isn't that, isn't, isn't that what pleases God is when we're perfect? And we've got to be perfect in action. We've got to be perfect in our faith, perfect in our belief. There can be no doubting. I mean, there can be no struggles in the Christian life, right? That's actually not what the text is going to tell us. Verse 13, it says, But Ananias answered and said, Lord, I have heard from many that this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all those who call on your name. See, I want to be clear about this. The third thing, a third way that we have to be if God's going to use us to make an impact of the kingdom is we have to be authentic. Or maybe we have to be honest. Or maybe we have to be truthful. Or maybe we have to be imperfect. I don't know what the right term is. I think authentic kind of covers all of that. Because here's Ananias. He's saying, God, God, I, I know this guy. I've heard all about him. I've read the blogs about him. I've seen what they post about him on Twitter. I've seen the Instagram pictures of what he's done. I know who he is. He has a reputation of being a bad man. He has a reputation of being a guy who, who, who is persecuting Christians in Jerusalem. And we know that he's been given authority from the chief priests to come to Damascus and do the exact same thing. God, this guy sounds like he's a wolf in lamb's clothing. He's coming to do the same thing to, for us. See what this is a picture of? Ananias, and he had some doubt. He had some concerns about what God had called him to do. He didn't understand what God was trying to do. He had confusion. And I love what he did. Because you see what he did? He posted on a Facebook and said, hey friends, what do you think I should do? God called me to do this. What do you think I should do? Should I, should I obey God or not? I mean, you see it in there, right? Doesn't it say that he texted his best friend? It was like, hey, what do you think I should do? God called me to do this. Should I do it or not? Because I'm kind of a little bit scared. Is that? No, actually, you don't see him doing any of that. What Ananias did is he laid out his concern. He laid out his doubt before God in prayer. And here's Ananias just being honest before God. Saying, God, I'm struggling with this. God, I'm, I, I, I'm struggling to, to understand this. God, I, I, I'm struggling to, to obey what you've called me to do. And notice what happens. He's not blamed by God. He's not corrected and told by God you're an idiot. He's not kicked in the backside. God meets him where he is with his incredible love and compassion. And God helps him in his struggle. Verse 15, it says, The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. Ananias has concern. He has doubt. He has confusion. And he expresses that to God, and God doesn't punish him. God meets him in that and helps him through it. See, oftentimes, Christians are called hypocrites. Too often, in our world, and our culture today, Christians are called hypocrites. And I begin to think, well, why, why, why is that? Why are we as Christians often labeled as hypocrites? Is it not because we're afraid to be honest with our struggles before God and before other people? Is it because we have this idea that if we're going to be a Christian, that we have to be perfect and look like we all have it all together? 
Is it because we struggle, we have these doubts, and we have these, these things, but we can't let it be known? So what happens is we walk into church on a Sunday morning, and we put on the facade. We put the smile on our face and say, everything's good, I'm blessed. But really inside, we're still wrestling with things. We're, we're, we've got this junk in our life, and we're trying to understand, God, what is it that you're doing in my life? Listen, God's not afraid of your struggle. God's not afraid of your doubt. Because when we, when we can be honest with where we are, I mean, maybe some of this is when we can be honest with ourselves about where we are. And when we can be honest before God. And when we can be honest before the people close to us. Isn't it at that point that God begins to actually meet us there and lead us through that and comfort us and strengthen us and help us to overcome but isn't this what being a disciple is all about? That it's not about us being perfect. The expectation for you and I is not that we are perfect, but that we are growing. That we are constantly changing to become more like God. It is a process of God redeeming the hard parts of our heart to begin to look more like God. Listen, maybe today, maybe this is for you. Maybe today you just need to say, God, I want to be authentic before you. God, I know this is what you've called me to do, but God, I'm struggling to believe it. I'm struggling to, to live it. God, would you meet me here? God, would you help me? God, would you bring some people around me who can speak in my life on this area? Who knows? You might be one step away from a breakthrough today. The question is, are we going to be authentic before God? To acknowledge where we are. To seek help to grow. And become more like Christ. Last thing that we're going to learn from the life of Ananias. On how to make a difference in the kingdom. It says in verse 15. The Lord said to him. Go for he is a chosen instrument of mine. To carry my name before the Gentiles. And the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show you. Uh, how much he must suffer the sake of my name. See, the fourth thing we have to understand if God's going to use us to make a difference in the kingdom is we have to have a confidence in God's control, God's sovereignty, and God's power. See, here's Ananias. Here's, a, here's his objection. Hey, God, I know you've called me to go and minister to Saul, and disciple Saul, but listen, Saul's a bad dude. And God says, I know exactly who Saul is. God says, remember, Ananias, I'm the one that's sovereign. That means that God's saying, I'm the one that is in control of all things. You say, well, well how does this show that, that, that God is in control of all things? Because look at this. Look, look at that text, verse 15. Did Saul choose to become a Christian? Or did God choose Saul to become a Christian that day? Does it say that Saul chose to become a Christian? No. It says very cleanly, very, 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 very clearly, the phrase is that, that Paul, Saul, is a chosen instrument of God. God chose him. Saul didn't choose faith. God chose him and called him out of darkness, called him out of sin to become a missionary, to become a church planner, to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. This idea that, that we choose Christ doesn't play out in Scripture. You see time and time again, Ephesians chapter 1 says, 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before God. God chose us. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. But we are always to give thanks for God, uh, uh, to God for you, brothers, uh, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. John chapter 6 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. See, God's response to Ananias. He's got this concern. He's got this doubt. And here's God's response, teaching him to have confidence in God's control, even in salvation. God is the one drawing hearts to him. God is the one who's responsible to, to, to bring people into the kingdom of God. It doesn't depend on Ananias. God's already going to do the work in, in, in Saul's life. God chooses to draw people to faith in him. God chooses to call people to faith. And we can have confidence in the sovereignty of God because success doesn't rest on us. Success doesn't rest on us. God is the one who does the work. God is the one who's going to call people into a relationship. He's the one that is choosing and drawing and saving. Listen, this is the very reason why I can stand up here every week and preach. Because I understand it's God that's going to be the one who has to do the work. Like, I, I get to play a part of it, and I get to stand up and be a mouthpiece, but it's not my job to change people's hearts. That's God's job. God's the one that's sovereign. God's the one that's in control. I'm not. I'm not that great. I'm not that great. I'm not that smart. I don't have that kind of ability, but God does. And we can have a confidence that when God calls us to go and, and love people, that God is in control of that. God will use who we are and what we do for his purposes. That he's in control. And not only, not only is God showing Ananias have confidence in, 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 uh, in God and, and his control, but also in his power. That Ananias can have a control in God's power. It says, Saul is a chosen vessel for me for a great purpose. God's going to use Paul, or Saul, for a great purpose, to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And here we see this picture of what the gospel does. The gospel takes a great sinner and makes him become a great saint. The gospel takes someone who is deep in sin and rebellion, and the gospel changes their life to where they become a follower of God, a disciple the gospel does this great work to bring this great transformation in the life of this person. The gospel does this great work where it takes like a Raiders fan and makes them a Seahawks fan. Like this is what the gospel does. Can I get an amen? <laughs> the power of the gospel is it can change the, the hardest heart. The, the most broken person and can transform them to becoming like like. like can change a Saul to a Paul. And I wonder, how many times do we miss the opportunity to do good? Because you and I dwell too much on the past. Dwell too much about the hangups that a person brings. So we say, you know, I'm not going to go and minister to this person because I know enough about them. How many times do we argue when God sends us to go love somebody? How many times do we say, you know what, God... I know this guy. I know this guy. He's a drunk. He's, he's a thief. He's got mental health issues. God, no, there's nothing that can be done here. God, I'm not going to go there. 
Listen, do we understand and do we believe in the power of the gospel? Are we convinced of that? That God can take the worst of the worst and transform them into a child of God. But how many of us, is, is it even that our story? Sometimes we forget the depths of sin that God met us in. And that God transforms us to being who we are today. Listen, the reality of it, we don't, under, we don't know all that God's doing. But that mean, abusive person might just become the next apostle, Paul. That young, pregnant girl, teenage girl, she might just become the next Mary to be used by God. That kid who gets in all sorts of fire trouble and brings firecrackers to church might become the next Billy Graham. See, we have to be convinced of the power of the gospel to transform a person's life from a Saul to a Paul. And listen, when we bring all these things together, okay, here we have Ananias. Here's what we know about him. We know that he is a disciple of Christ. We know that he said, God, here I am. He's willing to be used by him. We know that he is authentic. He's acknowledging, hey, God, here's my doubt. And God meets him there. And we see that he is convinced of God's uh, uh, power, convinced of God's control. And God is going to use this everyday, ordinary, Jesus-loving person just like you and I to make a difference in the kingdom of God. Because here's how the story finishes. Verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on Paul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized as a Christian. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. Isn't that a beautiful story? We know how the story goes. Many of us know how the story finishes. This guy who we find is named Saul, who's a mean man, who's a bad man, becomes completely transformed. His name gets changed to Paul. And he becomes uh, possibly the greatest missionary church planner who ever lived. A guy who wrote a third of the New Testament. Like this is what happens. And here we have this guy, Ananias. Who we're not going to read again. Except in Acts chapter 22 when Paul references him. He is an everyday, average, ordinary, Jesus loving person. Who said, okay God, you're calling me to do this. And I'm going to make a difference in the life of one single person. And think about, think about church history. Think about the impact that Paul had on the gospel, on the church. It wasn't possible if it weren't for Ananias, a guy that you and I would probably forget about in another week or two. We can't underestimate the impact that Ananias had on the kingdom of God because he was obedient and was willing to invest in the life of one single person. See, as we look at this idea about the art of neighboring, about how God has called us to love our neighbor and to love the people around us, the people that God has placed in our path. Listen, you and I, don't ever underestimate the impact that you and I can make in the kingdom of God by investing the life of one single person. 
See, my prayer is that you and I would be like Ananias. That we would say, God, I'm, I'm committed to being your disciple. To, to having a relationship with you. God, I'm willing to be used by you. I'm willing to say, God, here I am. Just lead me and guide me. I'm willing to be authentic before you, God. Here's my doubts. Here's my fears. Here's my struggles. But God, I'm giving them to you. And God will meet us there. And at that moment, then we can become confident in God's control and God's sovereignty and God's power. And here I come back to that very same question we started with today. As an everyday, average, normal, Jesus-loving person who loves your family, who goes to work, who lives in your community, what would God have you to do to impact your kingdom, to impact the kingdom of God? We've had this idea the last couple of weeks about one person. I think we all need to walk out of here today and say, God, who's that one person for me? God, who is it that you are calling me to make an impact on? Who am I supposed to reach out to and love and disciple and share Christ with and, 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 and love the way that you've called me to? See, I don't care if you've been a Christian for a long time or if you're a believer only for a week. Every one of us has an opportunity to make an impact in the kingdom. The question is, are we going to say, God, here I am.